The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug, but I ended up connecting to the world around me, a world where each sunset was painted, where I felt adventure's pulse with every step, and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by Follow Me New York City Adventures. If you're listening to this podcast, then you already love New York City. But when was the last time you really explored it? Follow Me New York City Adventures is a walking tour company dedicated to the idea that a tour can be much more than a leisurely stroll around town. It can be an adventure. They take their guests inside places that shape the city's history and culture, creating immersive programs that leave visitors with the sense that they haven't merely seen New York City, they've experienced it. For a limited time, you can take 20% off the price of your adventure when you visit their website, followmenycadventures.com, and enter promo code BOWERY. That's followmenycadventures.com, promo code BOWERY. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. The Bowery Boys, episode 262. The Secrets of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Tom, it has taken us many years to get to this location. But we finally made it to one of the most stunning, most mysterious and elusive and most spectacular houses of worship in the entire world, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Yes, located between Amsterdam and Morningside Drive uh, and between 110th Street and 113th, the Cathedral of St. John the Divine is the largest church in New York, and it's one of the largest Christian churches in the world. And yet, this is no ordinary cathedral no. if such a thing exists. Every corner seems to vibrate on a different frequency. There are many things that go into creating its unique personality. For example, its architecture is a mixture of both Gothic and Romanesque. It's also packed with art. 
sculptures, paintings, windows, installations that celebrate both divine and human achievements in a way that is really, I think, unexpected for many people when they visit a cathedral. Mm-hmm. I think that St. John the Divine embraces the unconventional. So we'll be talking about these things today, but also tackling the straight-up history of who built this church and why here, why all of this art, and of course, why is it still unfinished? That's right. It's actually unfinished. It's not completed and will not be for the foreseeable future. So today we'll be telling that story, but then we're going to be heading up to the Upper West Side to explore the cathedral in person. We're going to be taking a tour and looking for many of its secrets and surprises. And speaking of bringing you along, we're going to give you some details at the end of the show about a special event at the cathedral that we just happen to be involved with. That's right. That is a mystery. (laughs) And a surprise. (laughs) That event is taking place on May 23rd as we're helping them celebrate the 125th anniversary of the start of its construction. So... If you hear nothing else, mark that date down on your calendar, but we'll give you full details at the end of the show. So join us as we explore the secrets and surprises of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. So that was a little bit of Duke Ellington's second sacred concert. Beautiful. Which made its debut here at the cathedral in January of 1968. And you will be talking about that later. Yes. But now get us started with the situation. It's This church is in Upper Manhattan. Yes. We are talking about... The Cathedral of St. John the Divine, which is located on Manhattan's Upper West Side between Amsterdam Avenue and Morningside Drive and between 110th and 113th Streets. The cathedral's grounds are very large and they contain many interesting structures in addition to the cathedral, which are included in its close including school buildings, a bishop's house, a former orphanage, um, a children's garden, and many lovely walks. But we'll be spending most of our time within the walls of the cathedral. Yes, not wandering around the close, close, (laughs) close, but inside, inside the walls. uh, And so what denomination does this cathedral belong to? Right, back to the basics. And very important to the story, St. John the Divine is an Episcopal cathedral. It is not a Roman Catholic cathedral. And the Episcopal Church is Protestant, although it also has many Catholic influences and considers itself Catholic with a small c. Catholic with the small c meaning universal. Right. And and we will avoid going down a theological rabbit hole here, <laughs> yeah. but let's just say that the Episcopal Church formed from the Anglican Church, uh, the Church of England. And one more theological point, and then I'll step aside from the pulpit— Um, That is especially pertinent to today's story. The Episcopal Church is both liberal and conservative. 
Um, it's liberal in terms of many of its viewpoints, you know, in terms of social views, social justice, activism, etc. Uh, but it's conservative in terms of many of the traditional aspects of its service and the way that it's structured with bishops and such, and even in many of the edifices mm -hmm. itself. So that's important to know when we're looking at this, you know, seemingly traditional Gothic cathedral and see many surprising and some would say liberal leaning uh, things incorporated into it. It's a, its community objectives have been very progressive, but the cathedral itself looks like something that that was hauled from ancient Europe almost. Right. right? From the old world mm -hmm. until you get a little closer and really look at it. So a cathedral does not need to actually be a Roman Catholic cathedral. <laughs> right. The term cathedral means that it is the seat of a bishop. So St. Patrick's Cathedral in Midtown is the seat of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of New York. But meanwhile, St. John the Divine is the seat of the Episcopal Diocese of New York. So New York's Episcopal Bishop is based out of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And while we're focused on names, St. John the Divine, the name, uh, refers to John, the author of the Gospel of John and mm -hmm. the Book of Revelation, not John the Baptist. And let's just leave it here saying that it is a hot biblical debate about whether or not the author John is the same John as John the Apostle. So just right. leave it. <laughs> and the divine refers to John as being a theologian, right? Right. As intellect. Right. It's not an adjective. It isn't like saying that man is divine. <laughs> or like a like Bette Midler divine. No. This is, this is a... The divine uh, Miss M. This is more of an intellectual, spiritual reference. He is a diviner. He is a theologian. So you said that the Episcopal Church came from the Anglican Church. That's correct. So why isn't this an Anglican Church? Well, okay, so for that, we have to go back to New York under British rule in the 17th and 18th centuries. Now, unsurprisingly, the dominant church at the time was the Anglican Church. Uh, we were, after all, an English colony. Mm -hmm. And really, most of the political leaders at the time, the big merchants, the landed gentry, the future founding fathers, most of them belonged to the Anglican Church or, you know, some to the Dutch Reformed Church, but most to the Anglican Church. And, and some of the city's famous parishes date back to this period, uh, the British period, including Trinity, which was chartered in 1697, and St. Paul's Chapel, which Trinity opened in 1770. Uh, and they didn't just stop at churches. Uh, they also started a university. They started King's College in 1754. And as we recently spoke about in our Tribeca show, and in many other shows, mm -hmm. I believe Trinity Church also dabbled a little bit in real estate speculation, oh, right? Oh, just a little <laughs> bit, yes. They were, of course, the recipients of church farms, uh, which was this giant swath of land that was granted to them by the crown uh, to help you know, shore up its finances. And let's just say that that proved to work very, very well. However, at the end of the Revolutionary War in 1783, Anglican anything was totally out of fashion. Sure, I mean, naturally. Who wants to be associated with those who we just kicked out of the country? It could even be dangerous. Mm -hmm. But what were we supposed to do about all these Anglican churches and their clergy? They were part of the fabric of the society. 
So in the 1780s, uh, the Episcopal Church was spun off uh, from the Church of England as its own independent church, still part of the Church of England and the Anglican, what's called Worldwide Communion, but operating independently here in the United States. And then naturally, King's College, you can't name it after the king, they renamed themselves Columbia. Right. And throughout the 19th century, then, the Episcopal Church flourished throughout the United States. The geographical areas of the country were divided into dioceses, each of which operated under the jurisdiction of a bishop. So in the case of the Diocese of New York, Trinity uh, remained the most important parish, a kind of head church, because there wasn't a cathedral. But as we head here into the 19th century, Mm -hmm. the New York population is going up the island of Manhattan, and society is moving uptown, certainly then the places in which they gather, the restaurants and theaters are going up that way as well, and certainly so too are the churches. That's right. Some of these main churches of the Episcopal Church were constructed in the 19th century along Fifth Avenue and along Broadway. Um, In the 1820s, St. Thomas's Episcopal Church would be constructed not where it currently is, but at Broadway in Houston on the northwest corner, the site of today's cable building. Because society is moving north. That's right. And this would continue now over on Fifth Avenue in the 1840s with the Church of the Ascension, uh, which was built at Fifth and Tenth Street. Beautiful church. The same decade would see the opening of Grace Church over on Broadway at 10th Street. And these are all Episcopal churches. That's correct. Same decade, 1849, the Church of the Transfiguration, otherwise known as the Little Church Around the Corner, opens on West 29th, so north of here. And then a big jump up in the 1860s, 1865, for the new St. Thomas's, which was relocating from Broadway and Houston, which at that point in the 1860s was not where you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Too much of a Bowery influence down there. And so they they moved up to jump into the middle of high society near the Vanderbilts and Astors, etc. at 53rd and 5th. So by the mid-19th century, by I'd say after the Civil War, mm-hmm. we have a great many Episcopal congregations, and but these are all in churches. There is no cathedral. Right. Although there has been talk of a cathedral since the 1820s, especially because the Catholic Church had already built their own cathedral. Because Old St. Patrick's Cathedral had been built between 1809 and 1815 down on Mulberry Street. And by 1858, a new construction was underway in Midtown. On Fifth Avenue. But the the Episcopalians really, really wanted a cathedral, had been talking about it since the 1820s, right? Right. However, it was too soon. Uh, After the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, it just seemed kind of dicey. So the subject didn't really come up again until about 50 years later in the 1870s, when the, the bishop at the time, a man named Horatio Potter announced plans to build a cathedral farther north on land 
get this, between 57th and 59th Street and between 6th and 7th Avenues. Ooh, so right off Central Park. W- which was brand new. And I mean, sure enough, there would be many houses of worship on the Upper East and West Side facing into the park. Uh, but that's interesting that Central Park South might have had one. That's right. Unfortunately, that plan was announced in 1873, just before the Great Panic of 1873 sort of stopped this and many other big projects in their tracks. But finally, a decade later, in 1887, the the church was stronger than ever, and it was the church's next bishop, one of the city's most respected men, and actually the nephew of the former bishop, a man named Henry Codman Potter, who revealed plans for the construction of a brand new cathedral. Wait, Harry Potter? No, Henry Potter. Well, that would have been a magical coincidence. (laughs) So I guess Henry Potter was an uncursed child. (laughs) Very uncursed. Uncursed nephew, actually. He was was bishop, um, well-respected. He did a lot of outreach uh, to the poor. Very active in a moment when the city was really growing very rapidly and seeing millions of new arrivals every year. It was that year that Henry Potter announced that the church's new cathedral would be built in Morningside Heights. Uh, And two years later, in 1889, they bought up this land. You know, this has always seemed like a curious location for me to build something in Mm -hmm. this uh, late 19th century, because there there wasn't a lot going on up at this neck of the woods. Well, well, that was changing by this point, Um, even though, yes, this particular land was occupied by the Leak and Watts Orphan Asylum. And just west of here uh, was a lunatic asylum. The Bloomingdale Asylum. Right. right. And th- those were large parcels of land. But it was ideal in other ways, too. The land had a high elevation, which made it very attractive, you know, for a, for a cathedral that would want, like, a dramatic perch. Mm-hmm. But the area was also becoming, you know, more appealing and easier to access. Uh, and the 1890s would see Columbia's development of the Bloomingdale Lunatic Asylum. So it was an area that was rapidly changing. Really quickly back to the orphanage, because right. that's a that's a very interesting component of this neighborhood, because one building of the cathedral grounds today is actually part of that old children's orphanage. Right, the Leak and Watts Orphan Asylum. And the building that you're referring to was its main Greek Revival-style building, uh, which had been designed by Ithiel Town. And that dates back to 1843, making it the oldest remaining structure on the Upper West Side. The the cathedral planners had intended to demolish the building uh, because it really sits in the way of the plan. Uh, however, uh, they kept it standing during the construction process because, you know, they, they'd use it for admin offices, even for services. Fortunately, much of the building still stands today. As this cathedral is such a big deal, you know, this wasn't just an ordinary structure going no, up. No. Um, how did they tackle the design of the building? Well, you know, like anything else, they turned it into a high-profile competition <laughs> uh, in 1888. They actually they had 68 firms enter designs for the cathedral, including super high-profile submissions. Finally, in 1891, the church chose a design by the firm of Heinz and Lafarge, um, a design that was mostly Romanesque, although it had some Byzantine and even Gothic influences. It was Romanesque in its rounded arches, uh, the chapels that were off of the altar, uh, but Byzantine in its tiling um, and, and certain Gothic elements like a huge spire and a tower over its crossing. 
I think in architectural circles, Heinz and Lafarge are very well known today, mm -hmm. but this seems pretty early in their career. Yes, George Hines and Christopher Lafarge had gotten their start in Boston. They both went to MIT. Lafarge was the son of John Lafarge, who was a, a pretty famous American painter and stained glass artist. And Hines, dare I ask, is he part <laughs> no, of no, the... No, 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 no. Different Hines. That's totally Hines Z. Right. This is Hines with an S. Okay. We're running up behind. Let's catch up. And they would, by the way, of course, go on to design structures for the New York City subway, including stations and control houses, notably the one over on 72nd Street and Broadway. Mm -hmm. All of these details, all this bling, it sounds extremely expensive. You mean the, the Romanesque arches and <laughs> yes. the Byzantine tiling? For instance. Uh, well, fortunately, the church had many wealthy members, many of them who attended St. Thomas's down on 53rd Street. They would prove to be instrumental in its fundraising efforts. From the book Gotham by Mike Wallace and Edwin Burroughs, ecclesiastically speaking, Episcopalianism remained the favored denomination of both new and old Protestant elites. Henry Codman Potter, who became Episcopal Bishop of New York in 1887, was pastor to the smart set. And when he traveled to church conventions, he rode in J.P. Morgan's private railroad car. The cathedral project gained important support from both prestigious Knickerbocker families and the more recently moneyed. The biggest contributors included John Jacob Astor, August Belmont, Cornelius Vanderbilt, and the man described as, quote, the financial and spiritual force behind the project, J.P. Morgan. So it sounds like most members of New York's upper crust had some kind of say or motivation in helping to build the cathedral. Yes, even people who were not members of the church gave money to the fundraising effort because it was also a reason for pride. New Yorkers were proud that they were going to see the construction of perhaps the world's largest cathedral. Well, they saw it as elevating the status of New York City itself. So construction finally started um, with the laying of the cornerstone on December 27th, 1892. But construction would actually begin the next spring in 1893. And the core construction at this time was on the eastern end. Yes, and they started with the crypt and actually built a chapel down there uh, to hold services. Slowly then, that end of the cathedral started to take shape. The apse, the seven chapels that were radiating off of it, and this area was supported by eight massive 54-foot-tall granite columns uh, that had been floated down here from Maine, each of them weighing 130 tons. Wow. Can you explain a little bit what this crossing is? So a cathedral is essentially shaped like a crucifix. And the crossing is, is where the arms and the top and bottom all come together. Mm -hmm. And Heinz and Lafarge's plan was to construct an enormous Gothic tower over the crossing. They weren't ready for it yet. And so in 1909, they hired the Guastavino Company to construct a temporary tiled dome over that crossing, a sort of placeholder. And incredibly, that tiled dome was constructed in just five weeks and is one of the largest tiled domes in the world. And still exists. Although it's hard to see when you're in there. 
So you've taken our story here to the early 20th century, and a little problem arises. You know, cathedrals take a really long time to build. But here we are in the early 20th century in the United States and in New York City, where Mm -hmm. life is moving at a very rapid pace. And even architectural tastes are changing quickly. Mm. So Heinz and Lafarge had designed this in a Romanesque style, but the Board of Trustees at St. John the Divine had always preferred a more Gothic look. And now all of a sudden, here in the early 20th century, Gothic is now in fashion. Uh Uh-oh. So then a couple tragedies happened that changed the direction of the story. One of them is that George Hines, he dies in September of 1907. And then the following year, in the summer of 1908, Bishop Potter dies. And he, by the way, is interred at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine today. But at the death of these two major players, the trustees were now legally allowed to go with another architect, an architect who will go far more into a Gothic style. And then meanwhile here, uh, in 1909, Guastavino is constructing that huge dome over the crossing. So everything east of that crossing had already been constructed. Yeah, the, the choir, the crossing, a couple of the chapels. There were temporary walls and roofing built. Flash forward to June of 1911, and Lafarge is in Europe traveling when he receives a telegram announcing that he has been let go from this project. Fired by a tweet? They fired him on vacation? Wait, why did they fire him? How could they fire him? Well, from a clip in the New York Times from June 22nd, 1911. From what can be learned, the trustees insisted on forcing Mr. Lafarge's design from a Romanesque edifice into a Gothic mold. To a large extent, they have done so, it was said, against Mr. Lafarge's will. And when they saw that he was unwilling to modify further his winning plans to suit them, in fact, construct an almost totally different structure from that which he and Mr. Hines had planned... They failed to renew their contract with him for additional work, a thing which is generally construed to be nothing short of dismissal. How did that go over with the the public or with the funders? Well, yeah, this was considered a true architectural scandal of its day. From another newspaper clipping from a Rochester newspaper, quote, While it is obviously true that the trustees of the cathedral have changed horses while crossing a stream, it must also be realized that the stream is very wide. (laughs) It is not expected that the structure will be fully completed until 50 years shall have elapsed, and an enterprise of such magnitude is far beyond the scope of one man. Let's go back to that 50-year part. (laughs) Sure. What year was this? That was 1911. Well, I guess now in retrospect, that seems rather optimistic. Yes. So then who did they replace him with? Did they go full gothic, full full goth? Total goth. They went with like the ultimate goth. Someone with a very ungothic name of Ralph Adams Cram. Cram was a maestro of the Gothic revival style and had by this time built dozens of churches and residences all over the United States, including St. Thomas's Church down on 53rd Street and 5th Avenue. Right. Rebuilt after a fire. And he is known for building great Gothic masterpieces on the campus of Princeton at the University of Richmond, Virginia. If you wanted austere, graceful, and imposing, churchy-looking buildings ever, he's your guy. He could cram in every little church detail. (laughs) Exactly. He was so gothic 
How gothic was he? He was so gothic that in 1895, he actually published a book of ghost stories called Black Spirits and White. Well, I think we have our subject for our next ghost story. <laughs> I, I think so. Well, so he was brought in to gothicize the building pulling from these great traditions of French cathedrals. Just generally speaking, it's fair to say that the western side of the cathedral today is far more traditionally Gothic than the eastern end. So yes, the the entrance and the nave, that whole section is crammed. (laughs) Yes. Now, construction on the nave itself resumed in November of 1916. But what's happening in the world at this particular time? That would be World War One. So it's not the greatest time to mount a gigantic construction project, thus dragging things a little more slowly as we head into the 1920s. Although I need to add, though, that even as the main building was being delayed, there were smaller buildings on campus that had been completed by the mid-1910s, including the choir school, the bishop house, the deanery, and a place known as the Synod House, or the Church Council. A building that looks like a church itself. Oh, it's so beautiful. Today it's an event space, but it was built to house the general convention of the Episcopal Church and was a project largely funded by J.P. Morgan in one of his last financial grants before he died in 1913. But by the early 20s, uh, construction's just kind of dragging on on the main cathedral? Yeah, I mean, um, it wouldn't be until 1921 that there would be a very influential bishop installed in the New York Diocese of the Episcopal Church, a man named Bishop William Manning, who was largely responsible for raising $10 million to restart construction properly in 1925. I should add, there's another helpful figure at his side, a cathedral trustee and a lawyer and aspiring politician named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Really? who led a fundraising drive here. So 1925 begins, I think, the major burst of construction. The nave, the western end, except for the towers, and many other features are finally completed, including the installation of that glorious rose window in 1932. Wow, 1932. That is, again, not an easy time to be tackling a construction project during the Depression. No, it certainly slowed things down for the decade. Well, okay, so now this takes us into the 1940s and, of course, World War II. Yeah, there had, you know, been some progress leading up to the war on construction here, but, of course, war would naturally slow it down. Then... Cram, the architect, he dies in 1942. Bishop Manning retires in 1947. So these two people who leave the story here, paired with the war, actually stops construction entirely. A major surge in construction here would not resume until the late 1970s. 1970s, wow. Because at this point, the, the church is raising money, but they're not, it doesn't seem right to throw it into this like ornate structure when New York itself, by the mid 20th century, is having a lot of financial difficulties. Not to mention the neighborhood around the church has, has changed dramatically. The cathedral stops construction because they need to stand firm. They would serve as a rock during a very difficult time. And meanwhile, at the same time, the cathedral is open for business and it's functioning. In 1956, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
preached here. Then we're entering into the 60s, and the congregation would get involved in the civil rights effort and even anti-Vietnam War efforts. Well, not to mention it's located, you know, just blocks away from Columbia, uh, which by the late 60s and 68 was experiencing its own, you know, protests and, and student movements. Meanwhile, a lot of great cultural moments that are occurring here. In January of 1968, so a little over 50 years ago, Duke Ellington premiered his second sacred concert, which was an extraordinary jazz work that combined traditional jazz music with uh, more religious themes. It was described as bringing the Cotton Club to church. And by the way, that was the music that we played at the beginning Mm -hmm. of the show. Ellington, by the way, in 1974, when he died, his funeral was held here at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. There have been many notable funerals here at the Cathedral. Nikola Tesla in 1943. There was a memorial service for Eleanor Roosevelt in 1962. And then later on in the 1980s, 1990s, you had James Baldwin, Jim Henson. And in 2007 was the funeral of Madeline Lingle, the children's author, the author of The Wrinkle in Time. Was she a member? How was she connected to the church? Yeah, she is closely tied with the cathedral. She started as a volunteer librarian for the cathedral and then became a writer in residence. She even wrote a book that incorporates the cathedral as a backdrop. So she's she and her legacy are very associated with the cathedral, which excites the, the little boy in me who read all of her <laughs> books when I was a kid. And, and you mentioned that she was a writer in residence. So we have to mention that the cathedral also has many different artists in residence. Yeah, to this day, there are sculptors, writers who are associated with the cathedral. So work finally resumed again on the cathedral in 1978, this time with a different strategy, I would say, mentioning artists in residence and, and local community members. They employed local stonecutters uh, who worked in a stone yard that was on the grounds of the church itself. Mm-hmm. In 1981, work began on the South Tower. On Amsterdam Avenue at the entrance. Yes, and began in the most flamboyant way possible. It began, they kicked off work here with a presentation, I guess, um, featuring the famed high-wire artist, Philippe Petit. Oh, the famous high-wire walking genius yes. who walked between uh, the Twin Towers. Genius, madman, whatever word you describe, how, you used to describe him. How was he associated with the, the cathedral? He was an artist in residence and still is, believe oh, cool. it or not. Well, he delivered a trowel to the bishop via a high wire that was strung 150 feet above Amsterdam Avenue to inaugurate work on the South Tower. To quote from a White Plains newspaper in September of 1982, Trumpets blared Wednesday as Philippe Petit carried the trowel to Reverend Paul Moore Jr., Episcopal Bishop of New York, who was waiting for him atop the world's largest cathedral. The high-wire walk, the trumpets and balloons were part of an effort to turn Amsterdam Avenue and Manhattan's Morningside Heights into a setting for a medieval celebration. A man in a sorcerer's outfit did card tricks and escape routines while an amused minister looked on. Up the avenue, Cathedral of St. John the Divine t-shirts, records, stones, booklets, aprons, postcards, and book bags were sold. (laughs) 
Merch. Uh, let's merch. It's merch time. Uh, in 1985 began a tradition that is still with the cathedral today. The first Feast of St. Francis. The first celebration where a procession of animals are brought into the church for their blessing. Which is still a big draw today. Now, many New Yorkers remember what tragically happened here three months after September 11th, 2001, and a week before Christmas on December 18th, 2001, when the north transept was severely damaged by fire. It shattered stained glass windows, damaging their century-old pipe organ and a couple 17th century tapestries. It took many, many years for them to restore this area of the building. In 2008, there was a rededication and celebration in honor of the reopening of the entire length of the cathedral, which featured some of the firefighters who had battled that 2001 fire. And that, that north transept remains closed to the public right now. Finally, a couple details of recent history to bring us up to present day. In 2016, apartment buildings with 428 units were constructed on the north side of the church grounds, on the site of the former stone yards. Now, this this real estate deal drew attention to the fact that the cathedral had not yet been landmarked, although there had been many attempts to do so. But it did become a New York City landmark. Yes, just last year in 2017. The cathedral... And the cathedral close. So here we are in present day. We have just told the chronological story, but I think it's time to go deep. It's time to go inside. And we'll go there after this. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug, but I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted, where I felt adventures pulse with every step, and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. So we're back. The Bowery Boys have moved uptown. Yes, we are up in the Upper West Side. Uh, we're sitting in a garden just off to the eastern side of Amsterdam Avenue at 111th Street. We're sitting in a garden on a beautiful 
spring mm-hmm. afternoon. Well, let's move from the garden of the cathedral into or in front of the cathedral itself, where we're going to meet up with our tour guide, Bill Schneeberger, who is a true expert on the cathedral. Let's, let's head over there now. And here's our guide. Hello, Bill. Hello, how you doing, guys? Uh, Good to see you. How are you? Thank you for meeting us and, uh, and offering to give us a tour of this spectacular place. Uh, we are standing right in front of the western end of the cathedral. That's right. We're at the west end of the cathedral, which is kind of interesting because, as probably many people know, I think, is that cathedrals are often oriented towards the east. So you mm-hmm. come in through the west, and as you walk towards the main altar, you're walking in an easterly direction. And that has symbolic significance, of course, as the well. The sun comes up from sun the east. sun comes up in the east, and resurrection is an important aspect of Christian belief. Right. So We're standing here in front of the main portal. A portal is the opening in which the doors are set, as you can see behind me. There are actually five portals in this cathedral, which is very unusual. Most cathedrals have three, uh, which lead to three aisles. But this cathedral is unusual in the sense that we have five aisles, therefore five portals. Is there a reason that you have five aisles? Yes, there is. It has to do with the original plan for the church, which was a Romanesque Byzantine-style church Mm -hmm. designed by Heinz and Lafarge. And uh, then in 1907, um, Heinz dies, and uh, there was a change in taste. And they hired a different architect by the name of Ralph Adams Cram, and his idea was to do it Gothic. So he inherited this very wide beginning part of the church on the other end, and he had to compensate for that. It's one of the reasons why this church is as long as it is. It's 601 feet from this door to the other end of the church, which is equivalent to two American football fields with room for the football, if you do the math. We always joke about that. (laughs) Now, Now, we're standing in front of one particular portal that is hugely ornate with beautiful sculpture work all over the place. We'll get to some of that in a minute because it's really strange in some areas. But then there's other portals, like I'm thinking of the one over uh, the most southern portion, is unfinished. There's nothing there. That's right. Uh, We also call this St. John the Incomplete. (laughs) Uh, Yes, this this cathedral has never been finished. The majority of the reason for the start and stop over the history of the church is economic, usually. Uh, It costs a lot of money to build a building like this, and uh, also a change in the mission of the church. Whatever money and, you know, uh, finances they have, they use more towards humanitarian services, which I think is makes a lot of sense. That's what a church in my mind should be anyway. So when people ask me, are they going to finish it? I tell them, come back 500 years, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I have to make note of some of the carvings here on the, mm-hmm. on the main portal here, because I think they will incite a lot of people's imaginations. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, while the doors themselves depict scenes from the, uh, from the Bible, mm-hmm. many of the things on the side depict more I would say disturbing dioramas. <laughs> For instance, there's one over here yeah. of the Brooklyn Bridge in some sort of severe state of distress as a vehicle careens off of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, the doors. The doors are um, bronze doors, uh, and they were cast by the Barbadian foundry over in Paris. The same. That was the same foundry that did the Statue of Liberty. And uh, there are 30 panels each door. The left door is all Old Testament scenes. The right door, south door, I should say, is 30 scenes of New Testament. So we have the Old Uh Testament and New Testament. This portal is referred to as the uh, the portal of paradise. This was what it's called. And as you can see, the sculptures look fairly new. I mean, they're they're kind of clean, and some of them actually are painted at the very top. They look like they were just made. Well, that's true. They these are the most recent sculptures done on the on the face of the church. On the north portal, if you go, if we walk there, you can see uh, ones that were done earlier. Those were done by uh, a sculptor by the name of John Angel, 
Probably, appropriate name for a sculptor, wow. right? <laughs> and I hate to ask who's in the southern. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing there yet. That's why it hasn't been done. That's unfinished. But this, this one here was done by Simon Verity. Uh, he was a, uh, an English uh, sculptor, and he worked here in the 80s and the 90s. Verite? Verite, yeah. So like truth. Yeah, exactly. Another wow. good name for a sculptor good working goodness. on a church, right? But it seems that for these sculptures, at yes. least for uh, what I'm seeing more on the sort of eye level here, mm -hmm. he's taking some of his inspiration, of course, from St. John, his book of Revelations. Right, exactly. But wait, let's just step up to the central statue here between the two front doors. Okay, and this central sta statue is called a trumeau. It's actually obviously between the two main doors, and the statue above it is that of St. John of the Vine, who the church is dedicated to. The namesake. Yes, and you can see he holds a scroll in one hand and a pen in the other. So he's looking up to Jesus there, uh, and you can see he's waiting for the inspiration, you might say, to, to write his uh, gospel, uh, which was uh, the last gospel. So then he's flanked on the left and the right by statues yes. of Old Testament Figures, who, figures. Mm -hmm. who, are, who are standing on top of allegorical scenes. Exactly, exactly. And these allegorical scenes, as you see at the lower part of the statue, a lot of them are contemporary. The, the big one that most people love to come out of, the most popular one, is the one right over there, which oh, shows walk. the two World Trade Center towers. Let's uh, walk let's over walk here. Over, yeah. So this is the third statue in, the one yeah. with the World Trade Center towers. I mean, what's striking is just that, you know, when you see a church of this style, you're not accustomed to see contemporary works upon it. So that's, I think, the first thing that strikes you. The second is that it's, of course, it's apocalyptic. It's apocalyptic. That yeah. makes a lot of sense because that's what it was all about, the, the revelation. But what we see here, you see the two World Trade Center towers in this very center, and you can see all this what could be clouds, or you might even think it's water above that, and other buildings, you can also see the Chrysler building there and so forth, uh, all falling down as if there is some gigantic explosion. Now, what's significant about this is the fact that this was done, of course, in the 80s and 90s, way before the World Trade Center towers were knocked down as they were 9-11. So many people see this as kind of being prophetic of what actually did happen here in the city. You know, and I think for me, it's just basically coincidental because it has to do with the whole idea of Babylon and the fall of Babylon and so forth and the prophecy of the, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, etc. And I think that what, what you mentioned before about it's kind of unusual to see contemporary scenes here. Uh, if you look at a lot of uh, buildings in Europe as well, it is typical to use contemporary imagery, whether it be in paintings or sculpture like we're seeing here, so that people can relate to it more readily mm -hmm. uh, when mm -hmm. they see things in their own, things that they're familiar with rather mm -hmm. than foreign things way from the past. So I think it's not that unusual. What is unusual is the fact that this did happen. I mean, we had the 9-11 right. occurrence. Now, I highly recommend people spend a significant amount of time looking at the exterior here because it is stunning and there's so many different secrets. But I think it's time for us to head inside and see what mysteries are in store within the cathedral. All right, so let's let's move into the cathedral and let's take a look at some other secular imagery. Sounds good. Do it. Okay, we just stepped into the church and we're heading down the northernmost aisle. We're standing here in one of the bays. and uh, The first bay on the left. The first bay on the left, and this is dedicated to sports, believe it or not, mm -hmm. uh, which is also kind of unusual. People find out, wow, what's sports doing here? 
But uh, again, sports is a human endeavor. I think it's something we all strive to do well in when you're an athlete. And so it represents this idea of excellence and uh, human excellence. So it's not so far removed from religion, you might say. And when you say it's a bay, uh, so it's an inset area with a stained glass window, Mm -hmm. and I guess an area where there could be an altar? Yes, quite often there was. As a matter of fact, before the fire we had here, there were altars in these bays, but they were taken out after the fire and have not been put back. So now when you look up at this window, at the sports window here, you can see all various different kinds of imagery. Some of the imagery comes from Christian history, but others actually are secular images. There are about 30 or 34, something like that, sports shown in this window. Contemporary sports, I mean, like baseball, football, basketball, ice skating, target shooting, automobile racing, bicycling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What I love about this church is the fact that this sort of religious secular connection continues throughout each of the bays and each bay has a a sort of a different theme and it mixes iconography from Christianity with just sort of everyday and even sort of literary and cultural figures. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, the next bay we're going to look at is the Arts Bay where we have literature represented, architecture, sculpture, painting, and so forth. And just to... And, and also, just yep. looking at these windows, at first glance, they look like typical, quote-unquote, stained glass windows that you'd find in a church. I mean, they're done mm-hmm. in a classical stained glass style. Yes. So that's mm-hmm. part of the reason that it's kind of surprising to see 20th century references depicted mm-hmm. in these classical stained glass windows. Yeah. However, mm-hmm. if you go to Europe and look at some of the imagery there in those stained glass windows, you're going to see, like, for example, the sculptural facade on the front of Notre Dame in Paris. Sure. You don't see just saints represented. You see kings, queens, important people. So it's not that unusual, really, when you think about it. It seems at first, you know, wow, what is that doing there? But uh, I think it's a tradition that's been carried on over hundreds of years, really. Maybe we're just not used to the concept of a contemporary cathedral. Possibly, <laughs> sure. <laughs> now, before we move in inwards to, uh, to other things, in the cathedral, I just wanted to give a shout out to something that's quite beloved, especially for uh, my literary friends here, and that is the Poets Corner dedicated to American literature, and it features plaques with many great famous American writers uh, on the front of it. That's right. Uh, sometimes I have to laugh sometimes because some people look, especially kids, I'll look up in there, and you can see they're all very, very famous, you know, uh, important American writers. Right. Tennessee poets. Williams, uh, James Baldwin. Exactly. And some say, are they all buried here? And I say, <laughs> of course not. That would be quite an accomplishment. <laughs> extraordinary. Why, extraordinary. Walt Whitman <laughs> right. and Emily Dickinson are here. <laughs> all right here in this little bay, right? No, all right. just plaques. <laughs> So the next thing, uh, since we want to do some mysterious things here, the thing I just thought about is if we go up onto the vertical tour and stop along the way at the uh, Triforium, I think it's really worth taking a little bit of a walk up the stairs to see. And you said Triforium. Yes. Which is, if we're looking down the church, it's, it's that kind of dark passageway that That's you see right. halfway up. That's right, with all the arches. All right, well, I'm afraid of heights, but let's go up there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're crossing the central nave and stepping up. Oh, there's a little doorway here, the southern side. Oh. So let me just get the door, let me just get the door open and the lights on and we'll take a walk up. Needless to say, he has a secret key. That's right, I have the church key. <laughs> Turning on lights, there is a dark spiral staircase behind him. You ready to climb, Greg? Gung-ho. Just do me a favor and make sure you close this bottom door. This is a very tight stone spiral staircase. Just walking uh, just about 
200 steps. Uh, we're going up the equivalent of a sh climbing a 12-story building. We're going up 124 feet. Wow. <laughs> There's no elevator, huh? No elevator. All right, we're, we've come to a staircase that just spun off to the side. Ooh, he's got his flashlight on, guiding us so into a dark hallway. Yeah, so this area is called the Triforium. It's actually a passageway. And it allows you to go to from one end of the cathedral, the nave, actually, the west end to the east end. So it's a passageway, basically, a practical part of the building. Yeah, and do, um, do, do the clergy actually use it on a regular basis? Or? Well, I wouldn't say on a regular basis. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, uh, you know, when you have crowds of people down on, a, on the main floor, rather than walking through all those thousands of people, you can come up here and walk by. Yeah. But notably, from this triforium, we can look out through these carved archways um, down onto the central nave. Yeah, so now we're going to continue from the triforium to the next level. Actually, we're going to pass a few levels all the way up to the top. We're going to go to the highest point of the cathedral. Oh. And uh, we'll have a great view of the city from up there as well if we go outside. Let's head up there. Okay, let's check it out. <laughs> we're walking back to the, the staircase. As we go through here, you're going to notice these huge doors that we have to open as we go along. These are actually made of teak, they're the original doors. Um, so they're, they're pretty amazing doors in, in and of themselves. Wipe past that, stop and go straight up. A little bit of a Game of Thrones feel right now. Yeah. Really Dungeons and Dragons. twisting and turning. Yep. Is it just my imagination or is it getting narrower? Uh, yes, it is getting a little more narrow. Or I'm expanding. <laughs> ah, and we made it. We made it to the top, but we're making a left-hand turn. And we're actually stepping outside. We're out in the open. Is Greg here? Oh, you made it. Oh, barely. All right, so now we are on top of the church, looking down upon creation. Yes, out there, if you want to call it that, that's New York, creation. <laughs> it's a beautiful view of, really, Midtown from here. That's right. We're looking south, of course, downtown. You can see the Empire State Building. And if we come a little closer to the balustrade here. Do we have to? Yeah, come on up. This has not fallen recently. We'll be okay. <laughs> okay, I'm not looking uh, at So anyway, what you're looking down on here, closer to us, is the close. It's called the close. And the other buildings that you see here are all part of the diocese, the Episcopal Diocese of New York, Synod House, the Cathedral House, and so forth. And if you turn around, you can see the roof of the cathedral. We're going to be underneath that in a few seconds as we go in. Uh -huh. uh, the roof is made of uh, concrete. It's about seven inches thick, so you can think of all the weight that's coming down. And we're also standing between buttresses. Yes. These two things that are next to us, to our left and right, are holding up that wall and keeping it from coming towards us. Okay, let's step inside. So now we're entering the upper area, which, we, uh, which is above the main vaulting of the church, the center aisle. So we've climbed 124 feet. So we're at the very top. We're inside underneath the roof, and we're looking down on the ceiling. That's correct. So we're in this weird space between the ceiling and the roof. Mm -hmm. It's essentially this uh, domed structure uh, made of brick that is topped by a scaffolding, a metal scaffolding that people can walk on. And then all of that is actually contained under this, as you can hear, a very echoey 
rooftop. It almost looks like we're in a Zeppelin or something. It's also odd because we know that there are so many people downstairs. There, we're standing over so many people and, right. and over this vast space, but up here it looks so small That's and, right. and silent. Peace, peaceful and quiet up here, absolutely, yeah. So why does this space even exist? Why isn't the ceiling of the cathedral the roof? Right. Well, it couldn't be. If you look at it right here, you would see that this would leak. If this were opened up to the elements, it could not keep out rain and water and so forth. I mean, you mentioned brick before, but that's not brick. It's actually the, the Guastavino tile. So it's a ceramic. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like a piece of gigantic piece of pottery. I guess maybe it's a better yeah, way to look at it. One way of looking at it. Exactly. Yeah. Guastavino tiling is incredible. It's very strong, and it's used all over. I think there are about three hundred and something, like three fifty or so places just in Manhattan alone that have Guastavino uh, vaulting in them. It's so peaceful up here, and it's easy to forget that we're actually above the cathedral right now, in its highest place. Can we go to its lowest place? I think we can. That is called a crypt, a more mysterious place, I might say so myself. <laughs> so let's why don't we head down there. Okay. And now the great descent. Now the great descent. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Step down, Greg. We have just reemerged onto the cathedral I'm floor. Delightfully dizzy. So now we'll head up uh, in the easterly direction, up the nave, along the side aisle, uh, and we're going to go through a very interesting old iron gate. I have an old skeleton key, actually, to open this up. A skeleton key a to get to the crypt? skeleton key, yes, absolutely. <laughs> what, what, what else would you want, right? <laughs> All right, so we've made it back to behind the altar. We're walking around the seven chapels. Right, we're walking along what's called the ambulatory, so it's a passageway that goes all the way around uh, the main altar and the choir itself. And along here are seven chapels and a baptistry. A baptistry from the Stuyvesant family. That's correct. Paid for by the, the descendants of Peter Stuyvesant, exactly. You know, what's another interesting thing about this church that just comes to my mind right now is that the number seven mm-hmm. is repeated over and over throughout this building. Mm-hmm. We heard that there is a fascination with numbers and sacred numbers. Particularly the number seven. Seven, again, when you think of the number seven, I think the origin of the word actually comes from a Hebrew word, Shiva, which means something like completion or fulfillment. So if uh-huh. you think of Genesis, the Old Testament, God supposedly worked for six days. Everything was complete, finished, fulfilled. The seventh day was the day of rest. So from right at that beginning, we have that number seven coming on. So you said seven chapels. We have seven chapels, seven bays on either side of the nave. And did you say that the cathedral was 601 feet long? Which adds up, 601 adds up to 7. And the height that we just climbed, 124, 1, 2, and 4 added together is also 7. It goes on ad infinitum. I mean, it is almost boring after a while. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's so many fascinating artifacts along here. They're too numerous to mention. Many of them are so interesting and beautiful. We happen to be standing next to a relief of the Declaration of Independence, which was signed July 4th, 1776, July the 7th month, 1776, 1 plus 6 equals 7. Wait, 1 plus 6 equals 7... Oh, that's kind of a stretch, because you could say one, po- 1 plus 7 equals 8, and 7 plus 6 equals 13. Okay. Look, I think we're getting carried away with this. <laughs> let's go down to the crypt. All right, let's go down to the So we're halfway along the ambulatory, and Bill just opened up an iron grill. And another, this, this is another a, spiral staircase. This is another spiral staircase, very different, wider, with these beautiful Guastavino tiles. 
That's right. This defies engineers today as to how this was figured out and actually completed. But it's a spiraling tile staircase. Correct, correct. And this is one of the great achievements of Guastavino tile work. All right, here we go. Uh, you can get it open. Uh, it's kind of hard. There we go. Watch yourself. We're coming down some stairs. Oh, my word. Yeah. And we're stepping out into a crypt that is yes. it's laid out like the ambulatory above exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. We have a walkway that goes around pretty much mirroring the walkway above. And you can see these big, gigantic forms of uh, granite again that are taking all the weight down to that bedrock below. This is where all that weight is coming. I can't even imagine how many tons of weight are being transferred down to that bedrock. It's incredible. Wow. So we're on our way to the, the crypt here, and off to the right, basically underneath uh, the space that's occupied by the altar above us, yeah. It looks like I see another vaulted ceiling in there. Exactly, and that is another Guastavino vault. As you can see, the tiles look very much the same as we saw at the top of the church uh, when we were up above before. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is what's supporting the floor above when, we, when you're in the altar itself and, and the uh, sanctuary area. These Guastavino vaults are very strong. They can hold a tremendous amount of weight, and they're very easy to build. Follow me. We'll go on the other side and see if we can see a little bit more. It kind of smells like my grandma's old basement yeah. down here, you know? It's, look at those big pieces of stone. What is that? Well, that's, here's Guastavino vaulting again, see? This is all Guastavino vaulting. This is over one of the chapels. But this space uh, right behind you, Greg, I mean, this is a big open space with just a dirt floor. Yep. yep. Totally unfinished. Well, I think part of that chapel may have come, I'm not absolutely sure, but it may have come back all the way to here where the altar is. Uh, there's an old altar. Well, on the wall. I'm not sure what that is. It looks like it's you know, what we call a reredos. It's a sculptural facade that usually goes behind an altar. I'm not sure where that came from. There are a lot of things down here that have been placed here over the years <laughs> that I have no idea as to where they originated from and why they're here. It's a true mystery. <laughs> okay, Bill was just hunt Bill is hunting around uh, with his flashlight in this sort of ruin, um, and he just handed Greg a piece of Guastavino tiling. Look at that. I mean, look at that. It is really surprisingly hefty and strong. I mean, I can... They're usually about an inch thick or so, somewhat like that. And, of course, there, there are layers of them mm -hmm. that create the vault, not just one layer of tile. But it was in this space here that the church first held services in the 1890s before the altar above us was completed. That's correct, because they had to have some place. Actually, they even had the original services in the Leak Watch Orphanage building outside. Ah. Uh, and then, of course, when they, were able to, when they finished this, they were able to get in here and have at least this area inside the church. And then eventually they started using the St. Savior Chapel, which was the first chapel built. And then gradually, of course, as the church got built, they eventually, you know, occupied the entire uh, church and had the main altar built. So we are at present underneath the seven chapels right at this very moment. Uh, why don't we actually just step back up onto normal sunlight and check out one of the chapels right now? Sounds like a good idea. We could take a look at some other mysteries of the cathedral. Yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah, was it that oh, one? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it gets kind of confusing after we Are we locked in? <laughs> I sure hope Greg, not. we're locked it's in the, the crypt. It's the ultimate, the ultimate escape room. <laughs> okay, back up the Guastavino stairs. Okay. Oh. Yeah, yes. Okay, we're making our way back up, stepping back out. With this iron great door. Oh, hear that. Okay, back up behind the altar. 
So seven chapels, and they're dedicated to seven different nationalities. Yes, that's correct. And arranged by geography. Yes. So this part of the building was started in 1892. That's the same year that Ellis Island opened up in New York Harbor. And so the church fathers at that time decided to dedicate these seven chapels to the various different immigrant groups that were coming from Europe at that time. So the northern part of the church has northern countries represented, and the, uh, or the southern side of the church has sort of southern European countries represented. So each, each chapel ha- is named after a patron saint of that particular country. Hmm. So the first one that we're walking past is St. James or Santiago. So that's representing uh, Spanish immigrants. Okay. okay. And there we also have, if you look over, you can see that piano. Do you see the piano over there? All the way in the back there, oh, yeah. Yeah, that piano is covered with the black covering. Mm-hmm. That is Duke Ellington's piano. Ah, because Duke Ellington was a very uh, prominent person in this church yeah, here. This from his performance in 1968? There you go. Wow. Actually, yeah. And his funeral here also, mm-hmm. there were like 6,000 and 8,000 people here for his funeral. So uh, very important. So this is St. Ambrose Chapel, and this is dedicated to Italian immigrants. So moving around, then we, we've left Spain, and now we're in Italy. In Italy, right. And now the next one is France. This is St. Martin of Tours. The next chapel that we're walking into right here is the most eastern end of the, of the building, and this is St. Savior's Chapel. So this is dedicated to, let's say, uh, eastern manifestations of Christianity. So think of Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and Eastern European immigrants. Okay, and it's the most easternly of the chapels, the most sacred in a way because it's from here where the sun comes up and goes through these windows. Exactly, and we've reached the other end of that 601 feet uh-huh. from the bronze doors in the west end to that window that we're looking at straight ahead. And while we're back here, can we just step over uh, to the next chapel where there's another interesting piece on the altar? Okay, let's go there. I'm not going to tell you what it is until we get there. So we're just stepping into the chapel of St. Columba. St. Columba represents English-speaking people. So in this English chapel, uh, there is something interesting up there on the altarpiece. It looks like a triptych. Yes, it is a triptych, but let's go take a closer look. So we're stepping up. This is a... It uh, looks like silver or white gold triptych that's been opened on the uh, altarpiece with some very familiar-looking pop art figures um, depicted on it. It looks like the work of a certain New York artist from the 1980s, yeah. Keith Haring. Yes, Keith Haring, exactly. And it is a triptych, as you just said. Uh, it is done in bronze, but it does have a white gold finish on it, patina. And it's kind of a very interesting uh, history to it, I think. It's here permanently. And uh, it is called The Life of Christ. And it is the only religious piece that he ever did. And the story behind Scott, I think, is very interesting. Uh, when he was uh, suffering from HIV AIDS already, I don't know where the apartment was, but he had, he had a new apartment. And he didn't like the brick uh, behind the fireplace. And he asked one of his friends to bring over some plaster and just plaster over the brick because he didn't like the color of the brick or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so this friend of his did this. And uh, after it was over, uh, the friend said to him, wouldn't you like the drawing? It's still kind of soft yet. And so he'd never done this before. And he went up to it with a, a little knife and just drew some images in it. And he really liked this whole new medium that he had never experienced before. So his friend said, why don't I have some trays made up with clay in them? I'll bring them over. And maybe you can try this out. Maybe we can do a couple editions or whatever. And he also had run across, his friend had run across the small triptych like this. It was quite small. Uh, it was a Russian icon in Geneva, Switzerland, of uh-huh. all places. Anyway, brought it, brought it back and, and decided he was going to make one of these like a triptych like you see here. So the, the trays were made in this shape. 
and clay was put into it. And the story goes that uh, Keith basically just took this tool again and without any doing any preliminary drawings or anything, just started drawing in it and finished it uh, in, a, in a couple hours and was pretty exhausted when it was all over because he was already suffering from his, uh, you know, his ailment. Uh, and then, of course, it was cast eventually into bronze. There are, I think, four or six of these that exist. One is in a cathedral in San Francisco, where there is the AIDS uh, chapel there. And it was cast, well, not cast, but drawn, believe it or not, in Yoko Ono's apartment. Uh, in the Dakota? In the Dakota. That's wow. the story, yes. And when they installed it here, uh, Yoko Ono actually performed here. Wow, well, thank you so much for this great tour. Oh, you're welcome. And I guess here at the end of the tour, we could ask, you know, <laughs> just about just about the church itself. Um, as you mentioned, it obviously is unfinished. Are there plans to finish the church, and how urgent are those plans? Well, if you mean by plans a blueprint, yes, there is such a thing. It exists. <laughs> it exists, I'm sure. Not m many blueprints for the building. However, if you're talking about a calendar, <laughs> as the next March we're starting to do this or do that, that does not exist. As far as I understand, there is no plans in the near future to complete this cathedral. Um, I have no idea. Like I said before, I tell people come back 500 years, maybe. Mayor Koch was here when the last building program went on, and he <laughs> said, you know, when you look at the European cathedrals, many of them took five, six, seven hundred years to finish. We're only in our first hundred years. You've got plenty of time, <laughs> which makes a lot of sense, and it's true. Yeah, so, it's true. Uh, so as far as I know, there is no tangible date or anything, completion date for this cathedral. In a way, it's more interesting this way because you can see the cathedral in process, you know, like you mentioned before, this idea of we're all in, in a state of becoming, you might say. So in this case here, this cathedral is still in a state of becoming. We are all unfinished. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, this has been a truly unique experience. Thank you so much for taking us literally from the top from the, to the bottom the yeah. to the very right. rooftop. Thank you very oh, much. It's my pleasure. Support. You're most welcome. All right, well, we're back in the studio, and we want to thank again uh, the cathedral and also our tour guide uh, extraordinaire, Bill Schneeberger, for showing us around. You know, this has been a full-bodied show, but there are mm -hmm. so many little details of the cathedral that we never, we didn't really get to. So obviously the best way for you to get a clearer image of the things that the cathedral offer is to visit you can visit on your own, or you can take a guided tour. We've taken a couple of them um, and really enjoyed our time. And you can also join us in person on Wednesday, May 23rd, 2018, when Greg and I will be helping celebrate, in fact, emceeing the birthday <laughs> party for the cathedral. We're honored to have been asked to do this. It's going to be really a special evening. There's going to be a performance by the Duke Ellington Legacy Band, the photo booths, little mini tours that, where you can view the party from the Triforium. Oh, back dozens, up to the Triforium. I know, dozens of feet up, and there'll be some signature cocktails from Highland Park Whiskey and a dessert bar. More importantly, the ticket sales for this event will support the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. On top of being one of the largest cathedrals, it also houses a soup kitchen, which serves thousands of meals to needy New Yorkers every year. It's going to be a wonderful evening. We really hope that you can join us. Uh, we'd love to meet you in person and to celebrate this historic church together. For more information and tickets, you can visit stjohndivine.org. We'll also be posting more on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. 
And we'll have a special reduced rate for those who support us on Patreon.com. So it'll be the Bowery Boys by Candlelight and Stained Glass, and all for a good cause. And you'll get to see us dress nice, too. (laughs) That'll be a first. (laughs) So join us, Wednesday, May 23rd. Speaking of Patreon, thank you so much to the people who have joined us with their support on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Now, now for some more secrets and mysteries and surprises from the cathedral, we had a very long tour. So some of those stops we've we've actually saved for those who support us on Patreon. So, so patrons look for the full-length tour coming early next week. Lastly, quick note, Greg and I are looking for two different interns to join us uh, for a summer internship. We're looking for a production intern to help us with recording and editing and also an editorial and marketing intern to help us with, well, editorial and marketing. Everything else. <laughs> so if you're if you're interested, please email us at tom at barryboyspodcast.com and greg at barryboyspodcast.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now, I don't need to go to Mars. Because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota. So little time.